Optimal Bio podcast. At Optimal Bio, we don't just balance your hormones, we balance your whole body. Our conversations range from nutrition to medicine with an emphasis on wellness tips to support your health journey. If you like what you hear, find us on the web at optimalbio.com and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Welcome everybody to another edition of Optimal Bio Wellness Podcast. Today, we want to introduce you to a new member of our team, Johnny Moody. He's been with us for, I think, a little bit over a month at this point in time and primarily works out of the, our Charlotte location. And to get started, Johnny, I'm going to kick it back to you. And uh, if you wouldn't mind just giving our audience you know, a five-minute overview of your background and how you got to where you are. Okay. Thank you, Jim, for having me today this afternoon. And uh I'm Johnny Moody. I'm a family nurse practitioner. I've been practicing for about a decade as a family nurse practitioner, primarily in uh, urgent care, emergency medicine, uh, and some primary care, too. Um, So I'm really excited to be here and be doing functional holistic medicine now. Um, And so, yeah, excited to be here. (laughs) Man, you spun through that pretty quick. Um, So let's go back in time. Uh, All right. You know. Where'd you grow up? Um, you know, where did you have a desire when you were, you know, 11 or 12 or 20 or 18 to, you know, get into the healthcare uh, field? Yeah, I did. Um, I grew up actually in Western North Carolina, um, spent most of my time in Asheville, um, where I was born. Um, but I did uh, move around a little bit, was raised by a single mother, hardworking mom, amazing woman who, uh, uh, worked a, in a factory um, to provide for me, um, and I was very blessed to have her. Amazing woman. But uh, we moved to uh, some of my fondest memories growing up. We moved to a place called Spillcore in North Carolina, which is in uh, Madison County. And uh, during that time, um, had uh, nine tobacco fields that we worked. So we were hardworking um, kind of on the farm, and it was a very interesting and fun uh, way to grow up. So in my spare in my spare time back then, I would uh, ride my dirt bike over to uh, the uh, to the border of Tennessee and get a, a moon pie and a coke, and then ride back, and that would be my day. So it was pretty cool to grow up that way and raising tobacco. Um, that was a major cash crop in that area in Western North Carolina way back when. Um, just it was just it was just a great experience um, looking back on it. Uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of long nights. Played a lot of sports too, so just very fortunate to have that in my background. So, were you actually working the fields? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'd, we'd actually raise it from start to finish, and at the end of the year, we'd use our cash crops to to do what we wanted to, and then kind of help provide for our family. But that's how I was able to afford my dirt bike. Um, so I raised my money that way and got my dirt bike. Pretty proud moment for me when I was about ten. Um, so it's pretty cool. So kind of walk us through the, uh, that, that farming process. Um, you know, I knew a guy who, uh, uh, worked in, uh, owned actually the tobacco, tobacco warehouses, uh, in Durham and, you know, they would obviously, you know, by rail, you know, a lot of the stuff would come in, they'd process everything and then, um, lease space out to the cigarette companies at the time and everything else. So, you know, I've heard about picking cotton. I've heard about, you know, um, farming other, you know, crops and what have you, but kind of walk us through the, the tobacco process. Yeah. So you start out in uh, the mountains. Um, so you, you find some flat land. Usually that's near uh, what we call a bottom uh, beside the river. 
and you have to prepare the the soil so you have to pull all the uh, rocks and all the stuff out of it so it's a lot of work to do that just to get the the field prepared and then obviously we plant it and we plant it as it grows we what we call uh, um, you know keeping the the um, weeds out of it and stuff like that it's a lot of work it's a continuous process until it gets tall enough to where you cut it and then you cut it and um, put it on sticks and then you hang it up into the, the barns to cure and then over a period of time it dries out and, and cures and then we take that down and actually take the leaves off by hand and then pack them down into a bale and then bale it up and then we would take it to Asheville uh, and that's where they weigh it and sell it year long process so is it kind of like corn? Like once you cut it, that's it for the for the actual plant itself. Yeah, once you cut it, it's done. You got to re- retill it and start over the next season. Okay, so it doesn't regenerate, um, you know, in year two or year three or what have you. And they got to start it all over again. We start with small um, little plants, and we take those uh, plants and we transplant that to the actual field. Um, and we use a tractor with this big kind of wheel thing, and you put it in the in the back of the wheel behind the tractor and it would, it would plant it. And then we'd walk behind it and make sure that it was planted properly. And then what was your job during, as you explained this whole process to the audience? It was everything. I did everything. So, uh, you know, as a little boy, I, you know, I just had to do it all. So it was, it was good. So was the, you know, the, the goal to get, drive that tractor, um, as opposed to being on the ground and doing all the manual <laughs> never labor? Never got to drive the tractor. I wasn't big enough to do that yet, but, uh, never graduated to that. Uh, well, I always else. heard stories about people living in the mountains, you know, they're driving cars and machinery at 10 years old. And the rest of us that are, you know, more in the suburbs are, um, you know, we got to wait till we're 16 or 17. That is true. That is true. We do most of that stuff for sure. But then again, you had a motorbike at what, 11 or 12? I did. Yeah. And ride it all day long. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Okay, so you do that, and then you obviously you're in high school at this point in time. Uh, you get a little bit older, and um, are you know you said you played some sports. So what were you playing? Yeah, I was playing uh, baseball, football, and basketball um, in high school. Um, moved back to Asheville to the city of Asheville, and actually played there. Um, and, and and always had the thought process. I go to college and play college sports. And that's what I ended up doing. I went to a small college, uh, Newberry in South Carolina for football um, and realized pretty rapidly that, Hey, I'm not, uh, I'm not really the biggest, fastest, strongest here. So I ended up uh, uh, leaving Newberry and, and joined the United States Marine Corps in, in 1996. And I enlisted as an infantryman. So you took the hard so way was- in. I did. I did. I sure did. Um, absolutely. But I learned a lot. Uh, and that hard work ethic back in uh, Spillcorn, North Carolina, kind of made uh, boot camp pretty easy for me, actually. So uh, it was good to, to grow up that way. After the, the Marine Corps, I got out and uh, was going back to college at Western uh, Carolina University up in Cullowee, Western North Carolina. And a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, you ever thought, be a, uh, thought about being a firefighter? I said, well, uh, yeah, I remember that show back in the, the early 80s, maybe late 70s, uh, Emergency. You remember that show? It was on TV. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I remember that being pretty cool. So, yeah, that sounds like something I'd like to do. So I applied, and out of 300 applicants, uh, they selected 10 and uh, became a firefighter for the city of Asheville and did that for a number of years. And that's where I fell in love with medicine. 
I was uh, uh, fortunate enough to be part of a team that uh, had a, a full successful cardiac uh, arrest that came back and um, really cool experience. Um, uh, you know, we went for a first response call. This lady was down. Um, get there and there was a, a nurse who was already doing chest compressions on, on the ladies, which was great. Um, so we, we took over, we intubated her, we defibrillated her, took her to the hospital and, uh, the guys on the bus or the ambulance came back to the station later on that afternoon and said, Hey, you know, she might make it. Um, and so a number of months later at the firehouse and the little buzzer rings of somebody at the front door and it's this wonderful wonderful lady coming and uh, brought us a cake. She baked us a cake and brought it to us. So that was a special moment in my life. And that's when I realized I definitely wanted to go into medicine. And so shortly after that, I, I applied to nursing school and went that route. It's a pretty cool story. So you weren't doing anything medical when you were in the Marines. Is no, that in the Marine Corps, I was infantry and, and um, in the Marine Corps, you know, we're a department of the Navy. And so the Navy has a corpsman, and uh, one of our nurse practitioners in Charlottesville was a corpsman. And so there are two different types of corpsmen. They're what we call green corpsmen, and they're a hospital corpsman. Um, the green corpsman would be attached to an infantry platoon or an infantry unit, and they would follow us and be with us the whole time. So we're out in the field, and, you know, we're doing our maneuvers and fire and all that kind of stuff. And the, uh, the corpsman is with us, and so the corpsman is doing everything we're doing also has the knowledge base to take care of us if something crazy goes off. And they're also carrying an extremely heavy load of equipment because they have all the medical equipment, everything they need. So I always really looked up to them, um, the men and women that were with us. And I always thought, wow, that's something really cool that they're, they're pretty locked on the pretty squared away. So you obviously were there during 9-11 then, correct? Yeah, um, during 9-11, I actually uh, was in the reserve component at okay. that point, and I was a professional firefighter. I remember I was at Station 5 in Asheville, and the tones went off, and all the chiefs came over and said, hey, we want you to watch this, how they put out this high-rise fire. I mean, everybody knows where they're at at that day. You know, I'm sure you do, too. But uh, um, they thought initially that a plane had, you know, just kind of ran into the building, wasn't sure what to do or, or wasn't anything malicious at that point. And so we were just watching them uh, to see how they put that big, huge fire out, at the, you know, those top levels. And so we were watching that when they were watching the second plane hit. It's a pretty remarkable experience in everyone's lives, but being a you know firefighter and watching it happen, um, it was pretty, pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's almost surreal because when you were watching it, and to your point, you know, I remember remember where I was too, and uh, you know, then you you turn it on, you're watching, and you know, the first tower just literally collapses on itself straight down, doesn't lean one way or the other way, and the second tower, you know, the same thing, you know, half an hour later, and you just from where you're seeing it on TV, it doesn't look real because you just can't fathom that there's you know, thousands of people still in the building. There's people around right. the building. Um, you know, and then you see pictures later on of, you know, um, all the people kind of walking uptown basically. And, you know, they're all disheveled and, you know, there's, you can't see one foot in front of you and everything else. Um, as a firefighter though, I mean, after that happened, do you, you know, did you think about, you know, what would have been like to be in that circumstance as well? Absolutely. You know, if you don't think that way, then there's probably something wrong with you. But, uh, you know, um, it was it was a, a big it was, it was a horrendous uh, part 
of our history, but uh, a learning uh, experience for us all as firefighters on how to deal with that kind of situation. You're never going to be prepared for anything like that, um, but at least we, we did learn some things from it, um, and we took it on and, and developed some SOPs in our um, in our city and our municipality um, related to that. Um, just just a crazy experience in our life. So before that to after with your, your point about the SOPs, um, you know, what are some of the minor things that uh, are bigger things that changed, you know, post 9-11? Uh, you know, we used to use an old uh, kind of a dragger bottle um, pack that didn't have its, its oxygen tank. It's a self-contained breathing apparatus. It was a bigger, bulkier uh, thing that didn't last as long. And so we switched to Scott packs after that. We also um, focused more training on having all your gear on and going up X amount of, of flights of stairs and hooking into standpipes and stuff in the, in the facility. So all that stuff kind of changed rapidly. So, you know, Sometimes we were having some days where we'd sit there and be playing ping pong. And next thing you know, they're like, you know, we're, we're training. And so we trained a whole lot more and a lot harder. And we all grew because of that. Yeah, it must have been tough, too, at the time. Because, you know, obviously with your training, you're in effect, you know, requiring a, a much stronger physical, you know, component, um, you know, to being a firefighter. And, you know, were there some guys that, and ladies for that matter, that simply just couldn't make it and they had to drop out? Yeah, we, we had a pretty rigorous um, training academy. It was a six-month academy. It was actually, in my opinion, harder than, than boot camp. Um, six months long, start early, and you're, you're getting it all day long. And you're doing nothing but training exercises all day long. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's really a big-time weed-out uh, process and so if they didn't make it through that rookie academy, you know, we kind of weeded that stuff out prior to that. So once we're online, you call it, and we're we're out there actually doing our job. But all those men and women are, are pretty good to go. Mm-hmm. So unlike the nothing against police, but the police force, where once you're <laughs> through the academy and then you're <laughs> you're doing your thing, um, you're getting the free donuts at the coffee shop in the morning and everything else. <laughs> firefighters don't have that luxury. Oh, they do a lot of training too. We need them, man. They're amazing. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not great, disparaging great them. Sad, man. <laughs> uh, you're not getting me on that one, man. Uh, we might beat them in basketball or softball. That's about it. Sounds good. Um, all right. So you're doing this and then you decide you're going to go back to school. And uh, um, what was the, the education? What was the school you know, situation like for you? Yeah, so um, I moved, uh, that's when I moved to Charlotte and was going to UNC Charlotte for nursing and actually transferred to uh, Mercy School of Nursing. Mercy School of Nursing at the time had 100% NCLEX pass rate, so they were a a better school per se um, on paper. So I transferred there, got my nursing degree from Mercy and then transferred back to UNC and got my bachelor's. And uh, at that time I was working and got my first job uh, on 2 North and uh, what's now called atrium at cmc and mercy um and i was uh we had this was pretty interesting we had 11 or 12 beds in the back of our regular medical surgical floor that was medical detox so we had we we serviced um heroin um, alcohol benzodiazepines you know all the 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 pills and opiates so it was a it was a really really um big learning curve it was a it was a 
pretty good way to train. Then I rotated up to the medical intensive care unit and did medical intensive care and also emergency uh, emergency room. They kind of rotate us around kind of where they need us. And so it was really, really good experience. At the time, I know it's changed now, but were you, you're probably one of the few males going through nursing school at that time. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. That's fair. Um, there were actually only two of us that graduated um, with the rest being uh, ladies. So that was how that was, was that? interesting. It <laughs> <laughs> was interesting, uh, interesting, but, and uh, a lot of fun, you know. Um, so you know, and, and then especially being kind of uh, you know the old the old jarhead who's coming into uh, being a nurse, you know, I kind of got razzed pretty good for my buddies and stuff, you know. But uh, it was it was great. It was fun. Um, and then uh, practitioner school was a, a whole nother ball game, a um, lot more in-depth pathophysiology and stuff like that. Uh, so it's pretty, pretty in-depth and pretty um, a lot of work. Um, and so, so the, once I got my what what sparked you to become a practitioner? Well, uh, on two north at Mercy Hospital, I met um, a PA, a lovely PA, um, who ended up as uh, my wife now, and she was you know have you thought about doing this? And, um, yeah, I have. So, um, you know, we'll go that route. And so I met her and, and, uh, applied to uh, practitioner school and, um, that's it. So if you're in a general hospital, um, I mean, obviously all of us have been in the hospital at one point in time, visiting loved ones, hopefully, and, and not having to be there yourself, but what's the how do you delineate between an NP and a, um, and an RN, you know, in that setting? Are they, is the RN doing more of the, the hands-on work and the NP is more of the manager? Is that, is that how you describe it? Or, you yeah, know? that's a good question, you know, because when I first uh, went to, to nursing school, I was a little bit confused by all the different titles and different um, uh, parts of nursing. So you've got the RN um, who really is running the floor. Um, he or she is, passive medications with a patient all day long. And then you have your FMPs, PAs, and MDs who come around and round on the patients and say, okay, but they're the ones who give orders. The FMP will give you the order to say, hey, you know, um, this patient's mean atrial pressure is dropping. We need to give them some more pressure. So let's increase the vasopressor dose to X. Um, And then the RM will go and actually carry that out, if that makes sense. But for the average person like me, I couldn't, I couldn't tell who the NP is and the RN is. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, um, but you obviously get paid a little bit different. There's different responsibilities, which you just described, but um, you know, whereas obviously, you know, you go in the hospital, you could tell who the doctor or the PAs are, you know, compared to the, the nurses and the nurses aides. Uh, so when you're, getting advice from your future wife at the time. And, uh, you know, you're, you're mm-hmm. going through the school. Um, you know, are you like me? Like, Hey, what's going to be the difference, you know, when I get out, you know, um, other than maybe a little bump in pay, um, where do you know that, you know, wow, you know, I'm going to become a practitioner and, you know, I'm focused and this is going to be great. And I could see this career in front of me. Yeah, you know, so it's a big step forward. It's just a lot more responsibility because now you're you're a provider of, of medicine, and so you're you're responsible for not only knowing the ins and outs of the medication, but also the patient. And so you're actually, made, you know, you've got that prescriptive authority now. And so when you prescribe a medication, you better know what it's doing. You better know the 
all the other medications the patient's on, make sure there's no contraindications um, and no cross-reactivities for anything that's going on with the patient. So it's just a lot more that you have to think about. Um, nursing is very labor-intensive as an RN, um, as an FMP or PA or MD. It's not quite as labor-intensive anymore, but it's a lot more to think about, a lot more responsibility. Uh, and so, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, you know, it's been good. Sure. So as a practitioner during that time, because you had been a nurse, um, are you listening to and seeking nursing input, you know, more so than let's say a typical doctor might, um, as it relates to patients or, you know, how would you describe yourself as a, you know, a practitioner and, and in relation to, um, providing the best possible care for the patient with a team of people? Yeah, I think you definitely, you know, if you've been there and done that kind of from the ground up, you know, I actually started out as a CNA. I was working as a CNA in school. So you kind of appreciate what they do and not the MDs or anyone else doesn't appreciate them. It's just they don't really know, you know, as a CNA, you're running around, you've got not only the whole, you know, section that you're in, but you got the whole floor and you've got to do all the vital signs. You got to make sure all the vital signs are correct. You're, you're measuring outputs, urinary inputs and outputs. You're making sure that there's just a lot of, of work. Um, and so once you become an FMP and you've done those things, you just appreciate that a lot more. Just like anything else, if you're in a large company and you started out sweeping the floors, you know, once you become the boss or whatever, the CEO, you know, as in our case, right? Um, if, if you're sweeping the floors when you start out, once you become a CEO, you appreciate that and you understand it more. You're like, hey, I know this is not fun, but this is why it's important. You know, you appreciate it a little bit more, I think. Now that you've been in it for a while, and based on what you know, um, if, if you had the opportunity to change the practitioner educational program, would you keep it the same or would you do, would you add things or take things out that, um, you know, would be more customizable to the actual practical, you know, work you're doing as a practitioner. Yeah, I think um, one of the big differences between a physician assistant and a, and a nurse practitioner is that the physician assistant is a, it's much more didactic, much more medicine based. As a nurse practitioner, we do a lot more um, theory and research. So there's a lot more of that in our program. And that's important. Um, I think theory and research is extremely important. You got to know what's up to date. Um, you know, things change, you know, medicine is extremely malleable. What was, uh, you know, protocol three or four years ago is no longer protocol. So um, being an FMP, I felt like we got a lot more um, knowledge base on that. Um, but I think maybe um, kind of combining those two together and, you know, my wife being a PA, I kind of get all the intricacies of, of kind of what she went through. I think if um, as a nurse practitioner, if we had a little bit more didactic um, uh part of that. And I think that would help. And I think if PAs had a little bit more, um, you know, the research and theory background that might help too is as nurses, we kind of look at patients as the whole patient, you know, we're kind of trained a little bit differently um, instead of looking at a pathology. Okay. Let's, let's isolate that pathology. What, what can we do to, to, to fix that? But we also look at the whole patient, you know, and like, how do you feel like, how do you feel with this? Or, you know, it's, it's a lot more mindful approach, I would think. Um, so all, all aspects are, are great. You know, there's, there's strengths to this and there's strengths to that. Um, but, uh, and that, I, I think that, you know, a combination of the two is important. So as a practitioner, most 
I don't know. You got any humor, funny stories, uh, any <laughs> you know, really positive stories that you want to share with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, primary care, I think this is what got me uh, and more um, into functional medicine was that uh, in primary care, you know, in my experience, 80 percent of the people, people didn't really need medications. You know, you don't really need a synthetic drug to do this. If you get outside, breathe fresh, clean air, change your diet, more whole foods, more vegetables, more fruits, exercise, get moving. Um, those things are so important. Um, and in traditional medicine, obviously, those are always going to be important. We know they're important. Um, but, in, um, you know, 85 percent of the patients that I had, I could say, hey, you know, your hemoglobin A1C, which, are, you know, we, we measure looking at uh, a precursor to diabetes or diagnostic for diabetes. Say, hey, this number is getting to this. Change your diet, get outside, move more, do these things. You can avoid medication, you can avoid complications, you can avoid these things um, with nothing, with just you. Um, and I think, uh, you know, working in primary care, that uh, that was that was hard. That was a hard thing to get across to a lot of my patients. Yeah, so what's your secret sauce on that? How do you do that? Well, you got to be motivated, one. One, you've got, you know, as a patient, we'll talk about it as a patient. So you've got to know, hey, there's an, there's an issue. I've got, you know, X amount of weight that I need to lose or I've got this this issue that's creeping up. You've got to be motivated. you got to realize it. So you got to be self-aware. And so me as a provider, I've got to make you self-aware, but i got to do it tactfully, you know, and professionally and say, hey, this is important. It's not only important for you, but it's important for your family. You can fix this now. You can do these things. Um, and being motivational to them and saying, hey, this is what you can do. This is what you can do this. This is how you can do it. Give them the, what they need, the coaching that they need. But they got to be motivated to do it. Do you ever run across situations where you're not going to prescribe? You know, you've given them a roadmap to get better, you know, where they got to do the work and they're not happy with you. Yeah, that was that's what I'm saying. That was a big uh, uh, that was a big issue, and, and and people in general, I think, just I'm paying you for a service. I want to get something back, you know. And there needs to be something tangible. Where I went to the doctor today, they didn't give me anything back. They didn't give me anything. I didn't walk out of the office with something tangible. Um, that that's uh, for some people. That's a hard sell. Um, but uh, I think it's really important if you educate them and you talk to them and you spend the time to sit down and tell them exactly what they need to do. And maybe that's even, you know, write them out, you know, a macro um, a schedule and, you know, a minor, you know, um, exercise routine and you give it to them. They walk out. They've got something. They don't have a, a, a synthetic drug, but they have something. And so I think that uh, leaning towards that. Um, is what I try to do in primary care for the most part is try to do that initially. Obviously, medications are extremely important if you've got something that's extremely pathologic. I mean, obviously, antibiotics, obviously, you know, if you've got some significant hypertension and you've got some some outlandishly high cholesterol and things of that nature, yeah, you might need some medications to kind of get you through. But if you start doing these things in your life and implementing you know, whole foods and natural things in your life, exercise. There's nothing more important you can do for your body than just exercise. Right. Uh, but if you do these things, eventually maybe we can get you off these, these medications. Um, and so that was another avenue of approach too. So before you came to Optimal Bio, how many 
jobs did you have as a practitioner? I've started. I've done a lot. Uh, I did, you know, emergency medicine. Urgent care was the longest uh, stint that I did. Um, and, you know, me personally, I think we all kind of have our own personal um, things in medicine as providers that we kind of get interested in. And for whatever reason, maybe it's a selfish reason. Maybe it's a family member who has an issue. Maybe your, your family member has uh, some form of cancer, whatever you want to get into oncology or whatever. For me, uh, I was a big runner. I ran for many years. I did a lot of marathons in Boston a bunch of times, did some ultras, was always really highly active in that and loved that. It was a passion of mine I had for, for decades. And just one day I went out for a, just for a normal run, normal jog, and I stepped in a hole kind of weird and pretty much destroyed my knee. Now, I didn't tear any ACL, MCL stuff, but all my cartilage. So I tore the meniscus, also tore the articulating cartilage. Pretty, have no, pretty much have no cartilage on the medial aspect of my left knee, just from a little minor depression that I didn't see. Um, so that got me big into, well, what can I do about this? You know, how can I fix this? How can I research this and, and help others who have this issue too? And so I got into some stem cell research and started looking into that, um, platelet-rich plasma, those kinds of things. So that's kind of really uh, one of the stair steps that got me into more functional medicine. And that stuff's really remarkable. Does it work for everyone? No, but does it does it help? And can it help people? Yes. And and that's without synthetic drugs, or without surgery. You know, when you go and you tear a piece of cartilage, um, pretty much uh, what you're going to do is go and have what's called a cleanup, right? And so what is that? What is it when they go and clean it up? Well, they just take that portion out, kind of smooth it over. Sometimes you actually have to have that done, but most of the time you do that, you've lost cartilage. You've lost more cartilage. And so that was kind of my big passion. So you said so you did an ultra marathon. Um, <laughs> I always wanted to do one, um, although I ran two marathons and I never got the euphoric Hey, I did that. I just felt like I was, uh, the race stunk and took me forever to finish (laughs) it. And then I was sore for the next week. And, um, so my limit is half marathons now, but I read some cool books in the past about these guys, uh, others just, you know, running for a hundred miles through the death Valley and, you know, through the woods of Tennessee and everything else. So describe to us your ultra marathon experience. Where was it? You know, how long did it take you? All that good stuff. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's just truly remarkable what the human body can do and what, what you can endure if you put your mind to it. Um, so a funny thing about that is, you know, I had run marathons and stuff and, and, and plenty of them before in the past and was getting relatively fast for my, my age and size, but uh, tore up my knee. And uh, the uh, surgeon came in and said, we're going to remove this and do this, uh, try to get you back to where you can walk okay. Because uh, it was that severe, um, but uh, you'll never run again. You'll you'll never run again, and and that's that. And I said, okay, all right, so let's do this, and I'll figure out the physical therapy and um, go from there. But uh, so in physical therapy, I, I said in my head, I'm going to run another marathon, maybe a bunch more. I'm going to show them that I can do this, um, and so. Physical therapy was, I had a microfracture procedure. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but that's where they go into the, they go into the bone and they drill holes into the bone where it bleeds. And when it bleeds, it, it um, you release um, stem cells, your own body stem cells. And then they put you in a continuous uh, motion um, device where you, you kind of move and that motion molds over um, 
that area of, of bloody tissue and causes a scab, and that's what called it's called fibrocartilage, and so it kind of fills in that gap. So you have something. So it's it's a it's something they do for a lot of athletes. Um, but that's the procedure I had, and it's extremely difficult to come back from. It's just really really hard if you. Anytime in your physical therapy um, treatment, if you hit that spot, you can tear that off and then you just start back over. It's just all over again. Um, so at any rate, uh, I did. I ran another marathon. Um, didn't do so great, but uh, I did it. And I was excited and, and kind of like, hey, in your face, you know. But a, a friend of mine who does hundreds, I mean, this guy has done I don't know how many hundreds. He's he's insane, but <laughs> he called me up and said, Hey, there's a, there's an ultra in Charlotte. Um, you think you can run it? And I said, well, of course I can do it. And he said, okay, well, it's a 50 miler. Um, and you know, I think that would be a good place for you to, to start doing ultras. And I said, okay, sure. I'll do it. I'll do it. They told me I'll never run again. I'll do it. And so <laughs> signed up for it haphazardly, hadn't trained. Um, and, uh, took off that morning about 5 a.m., 50 miles. And I had assumed, if you've ever been to the Whitewater, it's at the Whitewater Center in Charlotte. If you've ever been to the Whitewater Center, there's a, a nice little kind of pea gravel trail that goes all the way around the outskirts of the Whitewater Center. And it's pretty flat, pretty easy. And I thought, that's what we'll do. You know, so no big deal, right? So, you know, 5.30 a.m., we take off. And the first thing we do is take a hard right down into the mountain biking trails. And so we're running in the mountain biking trails. And that's where the whole course was. The whole course is through the mountain biking trails, which is rooty, rocky, and just up and down and just extreme elevation change, which I didn't even realize is there uh, for the whole 50 miles. But um, if you do it in under, I think, 14 hours, which is not a very fast time, but under 14 hours, you'll get a belt buckle. And so, um, you know, my goal is to do that. And uh, towards the end of it, my knee was kind of talking to me pretty good. But uh, long story short, I finished in 13 hours and 20 minutes. And so it's not very fast. But, hey, when I tell you you've never, you can't run again, you'll never run again. It was, it was an amazing experience in my life. So I got my belt buckle hung up at the house. That's pretty cool. So have you done one since? I haven't done one since. It took a little while to kind of get over that one. I bet. Um, I bet. Yeah, I haven't done one since. So we'll see. You want to do one? I'll do one with you. <laughs> no. No. All right. I'll do 50 miles on a bike, but uh, <laughs> I'm not doing an ultra marathon. I read somewhere. So your story kind of reminds me of uh, David Goggins. Um, you know, he's a... Yeah. I think he was a former Marine also. And, uh, he was a, he was a Navy SEAL. What a, what right. an extremely motivated, just a motivational person, just an amazing person. Yeah. I just remember him telling stories, um, in his book about, yeah, I didn't train and I just went out and ran 30 miles and yeah. then he had, yeah. I think he overdid it. Right. And he had something, uh, some part of his body wasn't excreting a certain chemical and he ended up going to the hospital for like a week and a half and, um, you know, if he ignored it a little bit longer, we wouldn't be talking about him today. Well, we would, but it'd be post-mortem. Um, yeah. So some of these extreme guys get a little crazy sometimes. Yeah, you get a little crazy, get a little overboard. But uh, I think it's just those, you know, people that, that have been there and done those kind of things. I mean, it's just it's just um, lets us know what you can do. I mean, anybody can do that if you just really want to do it. You can do it. There's nothing in this world that you can't do if you try hard enough. Have you, when you were doing it, you know, if you, and after you, afterwards, when you broke it all down, did you s spend half your time running and half your time hiking, walking? Um, like, 
had a str- during the ultra. Yeah, yeah, the ultra. Yeah, I mean those places back in there were so rooted out and, and rocky that there were places you literally just couldn't you couldn't run. You mm-hmm. had to kind of slide. <laughs> there was one portion every loop that I'd come to, I would just sit on my bottom and just slide down it because there's no way to get, else I could get around it. My my legs were so smoked at that point that if I tried to control myself down it, I was done. So I have never fallen so many times in my life than 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 doing that trail. I just you'd be jogging around along and you know your legs get so heavy that you just hit a root boom you're, you're yeah. down like oh man let me get up um so it was, it was pretty interesting so it's a really hard one so if anybody wants to try you know to get into ultras to have a, a 50k i think to start that but it's uh, it's a very difficult one but it's it's a good entry point you do that one you can do any of the rest of the ones i don't see how much harder it could be physically well 50K is 30 plus miles. That's even too long. Um, <laughs> so how did you get to Ottawa Bio? Uh, so doing um, PRP and stem cells, you know, I was looking into um, functional and holistic medicine as to be, and to be a provider to do that. Um, and actually, I got a, a message and said, hey, have you thought about doing functional medicine full time? And uh, I said, yeah, I have. So um, here's a company that's going to be um, coming into Charlotte or has come into Charlotte uh, part time and uh, they're looking for a provider. So I applied and man, I'm so happy to be here. It's just it's it's amazing. I mean, Dr. Brandon, everything that he's taught me, I've learned so much in the past. I've been here for uh, almost five months now, (laughs) but uh, just in that five months, man, I feel like I've learned so much more just about the whole body. I mean, there's just so much more about uh, supplements and plants and things that you can you can take and uh, that help with this, this element, that element. Uh, it's just, it's phenomenal. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I, I said it was a month when I started the podcast, but um, it seems like a month, but it's unbelievable you've been here <laughs> yeah. for five months. Uh, what did your, what was your knowledge of testosterone prior to coming in? Yeah. So, um, personal experience, um, you know, coming out of the military and being really active and, 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 and being fit and even, you know, the fire service and all these things always had to be a very kind of physical and had to be on it, you know, had to be, you know, um, at the top of my game, so to speak. And so I just, I could do things, but I just never felt quite like a lot of my colleagues. I mean, they would, they would, you know, go through this training regiment and they would, you know, we'd all be kind of wiped out, but they'd kind of pop back up and be ready to go. And I'm like, man, something's up. And so <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but I went and talked to uh, my doctor at the time. And it's like, yeah, you, you're, you're low. Your testosterone is low, which I had to ask for um, to be checked uh, initially. But yeah, it is low. Um, so let's start you on um, testosterone uh, injections. And so I did the injections first. Um, and so doing that, you know, obviously I felt better, but I'd have highs and lows, you know, I would just feel really good for two or three days. And then I just feel down the dumps for two or three days. And I just never could get that kind of planed out. Um, and then obviously with, uh, meeting Dr. Brandon and, and, and getting in here at optimal bio, I really didn't know much about pellets, especially I knew bioidentical and I knew, I knew about it, but I didn't know that much. Um, and then we started talking about getting me switched over to pellets and we did that. And man, it's been a tremendous benefit. It's, 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 it's been night and day. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know much about it either. And my wife went on it and changed her and 
she convinced me to give it a shot. And, uh, you know, three years later, I'm glad I did. Um, why is the, the traditional medical community that you were a part of for a number of years, I wouldn't say they're against testosterone, but why don't they reach out and learn more about it? Well, you know, it's a difficult question to answer. I think some are all on it, on board. Some aren't. And, you know, it just goes back to those findings and the studies in 2002, 2005, where, you know, for example, estrogen causes breast cancer, testosterone causes um, prostate cancer, which is which is phallus. It's not true. Um, so it's not true. The bioidenticals, that's it, just not true. Um, so I think that they kind of stick to that. And then also... Um, when you, you know, I'm speaking from uh, hypothetically, if you work for a certain entity, you've got, you still got rules and you've got policies and procedures that you have to follow. And if you fall outside of those, it's, uh, you know, it's not good for you. So I think that, um, a lot of them are trying to learn more about it. Um, some of them aren't, some of them are just going to be against it forever, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hard question to answer really. Well, did you have any apprehension, uh, about, not only, I mean, obviously you receive the pellets as a patient, but now you're mm-hmm. going to give the pellets, you're going to place in humans. Um, <laughs> how was your confidence level on that? Um, yeah, placing uh, pellets, um, a tiny bit anxiety provoking initially, you know, I'm not going to lie, but um, working in emergency medicine and doing stitches and sawing up chainsaw accidents and just things of that nature, doing the actual procedure wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but you just always, I think if you really care and you're passionate about your job and a passionate about what you do, I just really more than anything else, the anxiety comes from, I want them to have a good experience. I want to obviously, first of all, I don't want them to have any pain. Right. And so I want to place it in there where it's not painful and then they feel better. You know, so I think that's the most anxiety provoking thing is like, I hope this works great for them. And, you know, you just really want that to work out. Yeah. I think one of your goals in placing would be not to get the call, you know, a week later saying, oh, my sight still hurts. It's swollen. You know, it looks like there's some some fluid coming out of the site. You know, that's obviously something you don't want to do. So, um, you know, right. Well, luckily we lose less than 1% of pellets, you know, right. so that's, that's something that that's, that's good with Dr. Brennan's procedure. I mean, he, as, as a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, he thoroughly scrutinizes us and puts us kind of through, you know, we do, you know, probably a hundred, you know, a hundred placements before we're allowed to even, uh, do it without him in the room. I mean, he's he's very uh, meticulous, very step by step, and he's found a procedure over the you know the, the decades it's worked and it's and it's proven. And so that's what he he does for us and make sure that we know that ins and outs before we even attempt to do a placement. So that's been great. So you were a, a user of the shots um, for a period of time, and obviously you talked about the ups and the downs um, and the fact that you got to you know repeat that shot. I know weekly basis, I think, um, you know, in addition to that, uh, you know, you're, you're in the medical community and, you know, probably giving yourself a shot, um, or your wife's a PA, her giving you the shot. That's obviously not big, that big of a deal. Um, have you run across patients though, that have been so used to being on the shot that they're not convinced that the pellet is going to be better for them. And if you have run across that, what are some of the things that you communicate to them to make them feel better about 
giving this a, uh, a try. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, biggest, it was big for me too, you know, is, Hey, um, I, I feel comfortable giving an injection to myself. I've done it, you know, thousands of times in practice. I can do it myself just fine. Um, you know, but, but going to a pellet, you know, you feel like it's a much bigger procedure, but it's really not. It's one, it's one and you're done for three to six months. You know, when you're doing injections, you're giving yourself an injection. If depending on who your provider is and managing it and things of that nature, once a week or, two, or two, you know, every other week. And so every time you give yourself an injection every week or every other week, you're increasing your risk for infection if you mess up, right? And then you're, incre- and then you're, you're increasing your risk for uh, misdosing. You know, you pull it up and the vial's pretty small and it's kind of hard to say, is this 100 milligrams or is this 120? It's really hard to get get that perfect. Um, and then, you know, with pellets, you don't have to worry about that. And that's been the biggest thing. Well, one of the big things for me, obviously, I feel a lot better on them. I'm a lot more stable, sleep better. There's just so many uh, things have changed for me. But I think, you know, when you're going back to the pellets, when you put the pellets in, you do it once, you're done for three to six months. You don't have to worry about it again. Yeah, you might be sore for a couple of days, but that's nothing. I don't have to give myself a shot every week, you know? Yeah. Now, I got a friend of mine that's on the creams. I don't know if you've ever experienced them before, but obviously that's a painless you know, application, yeah. but flip side, it's yeah. inconvenient. You know, you got to right. touch, can't touch anybody for a while. You can't, you know, use a towel. You can't take a shower. You can't go work out. You got to wait for, you know, that, right. that cream to absorb. And then you got to do that every single day as well. So to your point, you know, I think, uh, from an application standpoint, um, you know, the pellets are certainly a, a, the way to go. And then obviously there's this great debate now, uh, with, we use bioidentical or optimal bio, and then obviously there's a synthetic testapel hormone that's out there as well, a pellet that's out there as well. Um, some of your patients ask you about the difference between both of those, or is that something that's not really discussed too much? I think most of the patients that come here are already on board with bioidenticals. They already know that that's the, um, the way to go. Um, that's the safest option, and all the research and data suggests that. And they're pretty on board already before they come in. I don't really have that one so much. But out out in town, when I'm talking to friends, colleagues, you know, uh, firefighters, um, young ladies who may or be experiencing perimenopause, menopausal symptoms, um, just talking to them about the differences, right? So um, my conversation with the guys in the cream is like, you know, I've got daughters, you know, I can't be worrying about, you know, in the back of my mind, oh my gosh, did I wash my hands really well right after I did that before I hugged my daughter before I went out the door? You know, those things, and that's extremely important. I mean, you're going affect other people with that um you know and then the creams just don't get you up uh kind of high enough i mean and it's and you want to talk about shots being once a week or every other week doing that um amplitude and depression and wave uh, of dosage you know every day so you know in the morning you put your cream on that afternoon you're already back down right and the next day it's all over again and then um i got a lot of uh or I know a lot of people that they're in the fire service and things of that nature where you're sweating a lot, you're working hard. Right. And so you, you apply that cream and then, you know, you get outside and it's 96 degrees, like it's going to be here today in Charlotte. And, you know, is that, what's the efficacy of that? Is it right. going to, is it going to work or not? You know? Um, so it's just the pellets are just, it's just really the way to go. And then all my, all my research that I've done, I, obviously I scrutinized all the papers. I did everything first because it's my own body, right? You know, I want to make sure that I do the right thing for my body. I want to ad- advocate the right thing for my patients, you know, and I think it's extremely important that that's the way that I went. So I'm not going to, 
advocating anything to you or your family member that's not unsafe or that's not been thoroughly scrutinized. I have done all the research and that's what brought me uh, to do it this way. So let's go back real quick to your, you know, workout routine these days. Um, <laughs> obviously probably a little bit less running. Uh, so what does it look like? What do you do? You know, take us, walk us through Monday through Saturday. Yeah. So, uh, Monday mornings I do get up at 5am and I know I sound crazy, but I get up at five and I'll go for a run. I'll run for an hour. Um, and then come home, get ready. And then I try to eat or worry about what I eat. Right. So you can exercise to the cows come home, but if you eat four pieces of pizza after your 10 minute jog, it's going to ruin it. Right. So at any rate, back from the run, I'll eat berries and I'll eat a bowl of berries. I don't really weigh them out, do all that kind of stuff, but I'll have a bowl of berries and I'll have eggs. And so I've got, you know, vegetables or uh, fruits and then I've got some meat. Right. Um, and then on Tuesdays I'll lift and then I'll do, uh, right now I'm currently doing an upper body, lower body split. So Tuesday will be my upper body. Um, Wednesday will be another 5 a.m. Get up and, uh, go run for an hour. Um, then Thursday is the lower body. And then I kind of just alternate that. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, depending on how I feel, I'll do kind of a speed day on my, for, for my run, which, <laughs> a speed day these days is uh, highly subjective, um, but faster than normal, faster sure. than what I typically do. And so you just got to, you know, I feel like, you know, obviously everything that you research, everything that you look at, there's nothing more important than getting your body moving. Absolutely nothing. So Friday's your day off then? Friday's typically be my day off. Okay. Yeah. Mine's Sunday. Um, the- what do you do? So Are you biking a lot? I'm I'm reversed from you. I so I'll lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then I'll mm-hmm. cardio Tuesday, Thursday. Um most of the time it's a run. Um yeah. this time of year I probably mix it up a little bit because the mornings are I get up same time you do and it's lighter earlier. So I might go for a bike ride because yeah. that takes more time than a run sometimes. And um and then um thankfully I'm near a pool so I can get back into the pool. And so summertime, I try to mix it up when I do my cardio with those three things. But, uh, for the most part, it's, it's a run and, um, I'm not spending an hour running unless I'm training for something. It's, I do about four, a little bit over four miles every time I go. And, um, to your point about speed, I do that every once in a while, but I feel like I'm walking when I'm, I think I'm running full speed. So, um, um, it's all subjective. That's just how I feel, right? It's like the guys walking in front of me, I think I could catch them and I do catch them eventually, but yeah, I think 20 years ago I could catch them a lot faster. So, um, see one of the things I think we've come across at Ultima Bio uh, over the years is, you know, I think a lot of our patients recognize the the benefits of, you know, hormone treatments. Um, but I think they, some of them, not all of them, but some of them use, take the benefits as that's the only thing that they're going to do or have to do in order to, to drop right. weight if that's a goal of theirs or to right. gain more muscle mass if that's a goal of theirs or to yeah. have uh, better sleep at night or whatever. And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier um, and you probably run across this thing in some of your consults as well. Um, you know, it takes not only the hormones, but it's all the other things in conjunction as well. Um, so how do you articulate Absolutely. that uh, where you can hopefully Absolutely. get them motivated to do that? You know, um, I think Dr. Brandon says it perfectly. You know, you're, you're, you're a Jaguar. You, you, you've got everything you need. We just need to give you the gas, right? 
Um, and, and so that being said, yeah, everybody that comes in here, they may not be where they want to be um, physically or emotionally or whatever. Um, but, um, you know, we get you optimal hormonally. We balance everything out for you. We get your body working and then maybe you'll feel better. You know, and you'll feel a whole lot better enough to where you want to go out and do these things. So it's a combination, absolutely a combination of the two. Um, but when you come in and your testosterone's in the tank or your estrogen's in the tank and, um, you know, you got these things going on, your thyroid is wonky, you know, you're not going to feel like going out and running three miles. You know, it might, it might kill you, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's going to hurt, right? So when we get those balanced out, then you've got then, it's, if you want to get completely optimal, We'll give you everything you need to get there. Then you've got to take the responsibility to get in and sharpen the sword, so to speak. Yeah. This has been great. Um, usually we end with um, the guest. In this case, it's you, even though you're part of the family. Um, <laughs> partaking, you know, what we call five takeaways or five pieces of wisdom, you know, to our listeners that, um, that work for you. Um, so what would they be? Five takeaways as far as health goes, I would say the biggest thing is eat fresh whole foods, right? So fruits, vegetables, lean proteins of your choice, whatever, you know, um, your philosophy is on, on uh, protein, uh, get those, but get them from whole natural sources, um, organic sources. You know, we talked about that already. Exercise, right? Get out, get moving, enjoy your life. You know, exercise doesn't have to be something that you just have to do because we tell you to do it and it's good for you. Find something that you enjoy. If it's get out and, and a hike, you know, get out and enjoy it. Go enjoy nature. Get outside, enjoy Mother Earth. Do something. Uh, get moving. Um, you know, try to eliminate the negativity, uh, negative things in your life. You know, what's holding you back, you know, identify those say, Hey, you know, I've got, I always have this excuse. I've got this going on. I've got that. I'm so busy. I've got this and that. Hey, you only live once. No one's going to do it for you. Get out there and do it. You're going to look at yourself now, look at yourself in five years, look at yourself now. Are you balanced? Are you sharp? Are you, um, are you changing? Are you making those changes? In five years, what's the difference going to be? Make those changes. Identify those issues. Attack them head on. Go full force at them um, and make those changes. Um, I think uh, next is this, whatever your family is, no matter what, what your dynamic is and where you are in life, get good people around you. You can call them your family or whatever you want to call them, but good positive influences around you. If there's anyone that's negative, there's anybody holding you down, you know, eliminate that from yourself. Be around people who are positive. Be around people who are motivated. You know, find out who's who's more um, uh, successful around in your circle and, and spend time with them. What do they do? You know, like Jim, he gets up at 5 a.m. and he goes for a four-mile run, you know, three or four days a week. Or he goes for a bike. What is that? Why is that different? Does that make him? Well, maybe that's where his head is clear. That's what clears him up, right? And that's what gets him going. And that's what gets him motivated. And that's what makes him think maybe outside the box or makes him do things that make him more successful. And at the very end, my fifth thing is really just the golden rule. You know, treat everyone like you want to be treated. You know, if you treat everyone like you want to be treated, the whole world will get better. 
not just us specifically looking back into ourselves and this, the selfish meism. I want to have this. I want to look like uh, Superman. I want to be like this. I want to do this, whatever. I, I, I. The only way you can truly be really happy is to, to give your love to someone else, right? If you give your love to someone else, then you become happy, right? You got to be able to do that. And that the basic thing is just the golden rule. Abide by that. Live it. Breathe it. Say, hey, you know, this guy just cut me off in traffic. I've got 17 minutes to get to the office. This is not the day to do it. I'm not the guy you want to do that to. This is not happening. Do you get out of your car and you go look crazy? No. You know, wave at the guy. He's He could be going, you have no idea, he could be going to the hospital having some kind of significant issue going on. So just the golden rule. Remember the golden rule. Great advice. Johnny, thank you for your time today. Look thank forward so to continue much, working with you. And, uh, you too. Keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. This has been a production of Optimal Bio. Optimal Bio is CEO Tyler Brannon, podcast host and partner Jim Baker, medical director Greg Brannon, production assistance by Core Media, Beth Grabencourt, administrator, Kevin Duthu, executive producer. The podcast can be found on our website, OptimalBio.com, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Our theme song is Sunwave by Paradiso, provided by Epidemic Sound. Oh, 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 oh,